All right, so good to see you again. Um, go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to... Um, we're actually going to look at several passages today. So if you want to keep your finger in two primary spots, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's letters to Timothy. We've talked about this a lot, uh, this passage, or this book we've talked about a lot in the last couple of months. And then the other one is in the Gospel of John chapter 5. Gospel of John chapter 5. We're in, a, like as I was saying earlier, we are in a series on our belief statement called The Statement. Know what you believe and why you believe it. As we're launching out kind of in the early stages of our church, we want to cover not only what is a church, what a church is, like we looked in our series in the book of Acts, but also what it is that we believe, what message do we have for the world. And so, um, so we're looking at this series and... Uh, um, Last week, uh, we, we said we had this was going to be a 13-week series. Well, um, this is going to be a little bit longer than that. We're actually going to take a little bit more time in each of these things. Like we were saying uh, last week, this is a lot of stuff to cover. There's a lot of meat in, this, in these uh, paragraphs. And so we're going to just take our time a little bit and go through them. So this week, we're finishing the second paragraph, which was the paragraph on uh, Revelation, not the book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, but revelation, this idea that God graciously reveals himself. There's a handout there for you on your chairs if you wanted to uh, grab one of those and we'll go through this. There's a lot of stuff we're covering today. I'm going to kind of skim through it really fast. Uh, no, not really fast. We're going to skim through it and cover. It may seem like we're going pretty like breakneck speed, um, covering a lot of material. But that's because we want to get to our passage today at the end. And so uh, we'll be doing like our like a reflections on that passage. So we're uh, we're going to be skimming through the rest of this um, pretty quick. But let's begin like we've begun every week in this series by reading together this paragraph in our belief statement. And I remind you again, this is three slides worth. So if let's so if you would let's um, let's read our statement. Revelation. God has graciously disclosed His existence and power in the created order. And has supremely revealed himself to fallen human beings in the person of his son, the incarnate word. Moreover, this God is a speaking God who by his spirit has graciously disclosed himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments which are both the record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. But we affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches 
obeyed as God's command in all that it requires and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. As God's people hear, believe, and do the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. Yeah, big deep breath. Woo, that's a lot. Um, So we're going to go through basically the last two slides. We did the first slide last week, um, and we will cover the, the next two slides this week. Last week we talked about God is a revealing God. And now, in his word, and that word is his word incarnate, which was Christ. And so we focused on Jesus, and now we kind of turn our attention to how God reveals himself through human words, and those words being recorded for us in Scripture. So we're going to be focusing on Scripture, the attributes, the characteristics of God's written word that we have in the Bible. As they said, all 66 books of the Old and New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, uh, 27 books in the New Testament. And so we're going to be looking at some of those characteristics before we get to our reflection time. So let's jump right in. And the first one is the inspiration of Scripture. The first characteristic of Scripture is that it is inspired it is inspired. Well, what do we mean by that? Where do we get that? This is, comes to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so if you did mark your spot there, I invite you to turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. Where Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So this idea that scripture is inspired comes from verse 16, where Paul says all scripture is breathed out, breathed out by God. Theonousta. So it's a combination of uh, the word for breathe or uh, spirit or wind and God. This is literally breathed out by God. And so it's rendered as inspiration, inspired by God. Uh, The ESV has breathed out by God. The... um, Like the New Living Translation has inspired by God. The NIV has God breathed. All of those are trying to convey the idea behind this word. So even though scripture was actually penned, as in this case in 2 Timothy, actually written by a human being named Paul, who probably wrote on an actual piece of parchment with uh, ink and and quill or whatever the writing device was, or had his assistant uh, writing or dictating what, what... Uh, Paul said, even though it's actually written in human words, it's been breathed out and inspired by God. That is what uh, that is what inspiration means. Now, uh, a couple of misunderstandings or distorted understandings of how sometimes this is referred to uh, when people refer to the inspiration of Scripture. They may be referring to I'm inspired by Scripture, like I read Scripture and I'm inspired by what it talks about. 
um, or it's, um, they, they may not see God's divine origin behind the scripture, but they, they might be spiritually nourished by it or be fascinated by these, you know, these interesting stories and think of them as good tales or um, moral exhortations. And, you know, they see very good things here. That's not the understanding by inspired. The inspiration means that they are literally breathed out by God himself. Breathed out by God himself. So, these, so the scripture is not, uh, as it is said in some circles, like a discussion starter or a conversation starter. No, these are actually God's words written, spoken, inspired, and now written and for us and for our instruction. So um, that is what Paul is referring to here by breathed out. So that's the inspiration of scripture. There's, the second one is inerrancy. And this, is, this comes to us from the line in here that says, and without error in the original writing, inerrancy, means that there are, there is nothing in there that is contrary to fact. Now, there's some who are, you know, attempt to kind of discredit the Bible, and, you know, there's atheists who try to point out contradictions and, and that in the Bible. Um, I believe that a lot of those can be accurately or adequately explained. But this idea behind inerrancy means, uh, basically, that the scriptures as we have them record, uh, accurately record facts. They're not recording anything contrary to fact. And this is kind of based on little three different um, statements. First of all is that God is trustworthy. God does not lie and his words are completely true. And I have some scripture references on your sheet there that you can, um, at, at home, go back and read these passages and read these scriptures and kind of do a study on some of these ideas when you get home. But let me read a couple of them here to you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when, God, when David is praying to God, God has just come to him and revealed to him about um, the, the fact that he's, he's going to have a son who's going to be on his throne. King David uh, prays this prayer and he says, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And, what, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Paul says to uh, Titus, he opens his letter and saying, In hope of eternal light, life, which God, who never lies, promised before the age, ages began. And the writer of Hebrews says, There are two unchangeable things, in chapter 6, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie. So these are just three examples. If you go home and you could study these things and you could look, Scripture regularly affirms that God is a God who tells the truth. He does not say anything that is false. By way of contrast, God's enemy, Satan, is referred to by Jesus himself as a liar and the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. So you have God who always speaks the truth. So that's the first one. The second one is all the words that are recorded in Scripture are regarded, regarded as God's very words. Even though they might come through prophets, they might come uh, through visions, God might speak to an individual, he might speak to a whole group like we looked at last week, they're all regarded as God's very words written down. And so the third point 
is scripture. If you take the first two points together, God does not lie. His words are utterly true. And all the words in the Bible are regarded as God's very words. Which, by the way, when you say, I want to point this out too. When it says that the, all the words in the Bible are God's very words, realize that he's actually using the words of other people uh, and using them to communicate his message. So, for example, uh, there are words in Scripture of Satan speaking. Like we saw last week, Satan comes to Eve in the garden and said, did God really say? Now, God has taken that example and has said, uh, even though those were actually technically Satan's words, God is taking that to communicate what he wants to communicate through those words. That's the sense in which it's God's word, right? Okay, so I just wanted to kind of clear, clarify that because you're going, sometimes people get hung up on that. Wait a second, all of Scripture is God's words, but, you know, there's some things that are, you know, harsh things that are said. You know, a certain king might say something really terrible or, uh, you know, uh, one king wants to tear up Jeremiah's scroll or... Um, we have to understand we, there's a way that you have to interpret what these passages are saying and realize that even though they might be saying, they might be the words of somebody else, God is using them to communicate his word, what he wants to say. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Okay. So if we take those first ones, God does not lie, all the words in the Bible are regarded as God's word, then the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. This is what is regarded as the inerrancy of Scripture. It's, it's completely true in what it says. Number three, the sufficiency of Scripture. This comes from the line, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words that God intends to communicate to us. At each stage throughout redemptive history, as his words were recorded and written down and the people of God had them, they were complete for what they were to know, everything that God intended for them to know at that time. And it contains everything that we need to know for salvation, for trusting him perfectly and for, for obeying him and following what his will is. And this, de this, defini this definition emphasizes um, that in Scripture, we are to search for God's words to us. There are several places where uh, it speaks of the words, God's words being sufficient, that nothing needs to be added to these words and nothing taken away from these words. The references there in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and chapter 12, uh, John in his, at the end of Revelation, as Jesus has given him the vision at this, you know, for the end of the book of the New Testament. He says, uh, do not add anything that is written to this book. So because scripture alone are, author are uh, sufficient. Number four, scripture is also authoritative or the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture. The line here is which it, uh, there's a couple places actually. When it says, which is utterly authoritative and the line and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. The key line there is over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. So um, there are times when it's not appropriate to make the Bible authoritative over a, over a domain of knowledge to which it doesn't speak. For example, 
Um, even though the Bible might mention foods, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is God's recipe book for what we should eat, right? You know, like, you know, there, it mentions food, and it might talk about, you know, making certain kinds of bread. You like seen Ezekiel 4-9 bread in the grocery store? You know, like it's got the all nine grains or whatever, seven grains in that thing uh, that God told Ezekiel to make bread out of. Um, that might be applying the Bible as authoritative over a realm in which it's not, you know, that's, uh, it's not saying this is a prescriptive kind of, uh, kind of foods to eat. Although the Bible might mention governments, for instance. It's not primarily a book on politics or political government structures. Although the, book, the Bible might uh, 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 describe things in the physical world, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually a scientific textbook that explains all kinds of rules of physics. Now, I believe it does say that there is a creator God who created the universe and he created it in a particular way, and we're going to get into that. And all of those are, uh, are true. But uh, we, don't, we want to be cautious to apply the Bible to a realm or domain of knowledge to which the Bible was never intended to speak to. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, the question is, what is the Bible primarily about? What are the scriptures primarily about? First one is, um, first answer is, it's not primarily about us. It's not primarily about human beings and instructions for us, although it does involve us, very much so. Has, uh, has a lot, everything to do with us. But it's not primarily about us. It's about God. This is the, an the second answer to this question. Well, first, let me say this. The, this, the line there, for the, the first answer there, it's about God, comes from the line, Moreover, this God is a speaking God who by his spirit has graciously disclosed himself in human words. So God, speaking God, his spirit disclosing himself. Bible is about primarily about God. Uh, the re why why I say that is because um, it's pretty easy to go through Scripture and to find how the Bible is all about us, and almost to the point where you can listen to uh, teachers, you know, on TV that quote maybe quote from a Bible passage, and it's all about us and our needs and for uh, our advancement. And leaves God completely out of the equation. That's something we need to be very mindful of. We need to ask ourselves, what does scripture say about God first? What is it revealing about who he is and what he's done? And then we see where we are in relation to that. That make any sense? Anybody object with that? Okay. Graham. Graham objected back there. <laughs> So the first one is God, it's primarily about God. The second answer is it's about um, God and his revealed will to diagnose humankind's need and God's solution. Humankind's need and God's solution. And that is salvation. The key line there is um, um, complete in its real, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to do and believe. Now, back to 2 Timothy. 
chapter 3. This is also uh, revealed in this passage where Paul is telling Timothy to uh, continue in what he's learned and what he's believed from Paul as Paul was his mentor and instructed him. Continue what you learned and believed. And in verse 15, he says this, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is where we get the title from Scripture. It's Holy Scripture. comes from that, that line right there. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the Bible isn't primarily about us. The Bible is primarily about God and his will to reveal to humankind what humankind's need is. And that's the need of a savior and how God has provided that need as a savior. And then that has implications for how we live. That has implications for how we follow, how we obey, and what we do um, to honor him. So number, that's number four. So we've had the, um, the inspiration of scripture, right? We've had the inerrancy of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, the authority of scripture, and now we have the clarity of scripture and the old-fashioned the old-fashioned systematic theologians would call this perspicuity. I just like saying that word. Say that with me. Perspicuity. Yes. Um, like it comes from the phrase like in, inconspicuous, you know, like that. Perspicuity means, uh, means clarity. The clarity of Scripture. This comes from the line, which is utterly authoritative and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. Actually, we confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. But we affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can, God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. This is very important. Because we do need to be cautious with anyone who, who claims that we can understand or know God exhaustively. But on the other hand, some have taken that to mean, well, then we need to throw with skepticism over anything that we can know about God. Those are two completely different things. Some have said, you know what, it's arrogant for us to know, like to claim that we can understand who God is. God is wholly other. Or, you know, he's just beyond our comprehension. Well, that's true. However, that does not mean that we can't understand something about God, especially if God has chosen to reveal himself. If God has chosen to reveal something about himself, we can be confident about that. We can know some things, some truth, truly. Now, some will ask the question, well, then why are there so many different interpretations in the Bible? The Bible can be used to support all kinds of things. Like, for instance, the Bible was used to support slavery. It's also used to kind of to, to uh, oppose slavery. There's so many different interpretations. How can we claim that the Bible is clear, right, if there's so many different interpretations? Um, there's an author named uh, Christian Smith who just recently wrote a, a book called The Bible Made Impossible. And this book is largely uh, his struggling with that very question. The fact that there's lots of different interpretations for him means, well, then the Bible isn't clear. And we need to, to kind of hold off uh, 
really embracing the Bible as being really authoritative. As a matter of fact, this is why Christian Smith, who used to be an evangelical Christian, he actually joined the Catholic Church because he saw a different authority besides Scripture alone and was making the case for, what you know, well, I think the church has authority that lies on par with Scripture. And this is why um, he moved to the Catholic Church. This is, what, this is uh, how he puts it in his um, Bible. He calls it uh, the problem of pervasive, it's fancy kind of words here, the problem of pervasive interpretive pluralism. <laughs> Meaning there are lots of different ways of understanding. There's lots of different interpretations. That means that the Bible really just can't be very clear. So for Smith, unless everyone can understand every part of what the scripture says, irrespective of whether they agree with it or not, uh, it must be for him. It's just unclear. Um, I think that uh, this view fails in a couple of areas to recognize a couple of key things. This fails to grasp, first of all, that there is an enemy who's working to misrepresent God and his word. God has revealed his word very clearly, but as I mentioned earlier in Genesis or in um, John chapter 8, Jesus says there's your, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, your father is Satan, who's a liar and the father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning. He's always been misrepresenting and twisting and distorting God's word in Scripture. So I think this view, I mean, that alone should cause us to go, well, I, that makes sense, right? You know, the Scripture, God can say something really clear, but... The fact that we maybe don't understand it or we might have two different you know, interpretations of it doesn't necessarily mean the, the fault lies with God, right? Here's the second uh, issue. The, the, this view forgets the fundamental human t- tendency to reject God, to reject God and to reject his teachings and to silence God's voice. This is evident in Romans chapter 1. We read this last week, and uh, if you would like to, you could turn there. But I'll read this to you as well. Romans chapter 1 says, God, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Right? If God's words are true, everything God says is true, he does not lie, then the problem is probably our fault for our tendency to suppress what is true about God. Little, little, a uh, few verses later, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's another verse in there as well. First Timothy chapter two. There's a couple verses there that, um, that communicate that. Let me let me read one more in Second Timothy chapter, um, the passage that we were we were in in Second Timothy chapter three. Just a few verses later, as Paul is talking about the importance of Scripture and that it's God breathed. If we keep reading into chapter four, look at what it says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge over the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Or preach scripture. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
And this part here in verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I just wanted to kind of write an email to Christian Smith and say, don't you realize, like, people have a tendency to not want to listen to God and Scripture. Um, But yet, you're placing the blame on God. That if people misunderstand or misrepresent Scripture, that's somehow God's fault. That's not God's fault. That's, That's our fault. And number three, this view forgets that there are human teachers who are out there to distort the text of Scripture. That's evident right here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, Not only people are having itching ears, but they accumulate teachers who suit their passions. So it's people wanting to to have misrepresentations of God's Word, but also people who are willing to actually misrepresent God's Word. Parallel passage to this would be in Second Tim or Second Peter, Second um, Peter chapter two. But false prophets also arose among the people. Peter's referring to what's happened in the Old Testament. Also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So this view forgets there's an enemy that's working to misrepresent God. This view um, fails to uh, realize the human tendency to suppress God's truth and to accumulate things that we want to hear. And it fails to recognize that there are human teachers who are out there willing to go and distort the scriptures. Um, this is a hot-button issue today in the church, this clarity of Scripture issue. Um, now, uh, I believe that the Scriptures are very clear. doesn't mean it doesn't take a lot of work in interpreting it and understanding it, but um, I think it's very important that we do not cast blame on whatever uh, variations in interpretations or understanding that we don't blame it on God and his inability to communicate. The problem lies not with God, but with those three areas that I was mentioning. And so that leads us to this kind of this next point that I want to make, or one of our reflections. And that's our approach to Scripture. And that is humility. Is that in the handout, by the way? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So our approach to Scripture, humility. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively, but we can affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. And so it takes humility on our parts to recognize that and to approach our task of Scripture prayerfully with humility And asking God to reveal to us his scripture. Make it clear for us. And as Kevin preached on several, uh, a couple of months ago now, that the Holy Spirit will make clear scripture to us. It will help us to reveal the words that God has for us. 
And here's our goal. The goal of Scripture is knowing and trusting in Jesus. This is the goal. I had a, a friend who, because, I, you know, I, I like Scripture. I, I think, I truly believe that God reveals to us his nature, who he is, uh, through Scripture. And I had a, a friend one time, as I, you know, because I talk about Scripture, I want us to understand Scripture properly. And, and, and I think one time he just kind of got a little, like, frustrated and said, you know, the most important thing isn't Scripture. The most important thing is Jesus, right? And I said, yeah, but where do you learn about Jesus outside of Scripture? <laughs> and I think it was like, oh, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought of that before. Um, there's some who say, well, we can learn about Jesus from, like, when we gather around the Lord's table and for communion. And I say, that's awesome. Where'd you learn about the Lord's table? <laughs> Where'd you learn about communion? We learn about Jesus through Scripture. We learn about Jesus through Scripture. And so that brings us to our, our passage for today. That was just the introduction. If you're going to miss basketball games today. Um, no. Here's, here's where we want to go. This, now turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Let me kind of set the stage here. Um, there's uh, a man who, uh, who has been paralyzed and he's waiting by a pool trying to be healed. But every time he tries to get in, somebody else kind of crowds in front of him. So apparently, you know, he's, uh, he's just unable to get into the waters at the time when they're supposed to be healing. And uh, Jesus uh, heals the man and then it kind of leads to this big debate with the religious leaders at the time. And so Jesus then goes to say... Uh, they kind of question his authority to do these things. And he goes, no, I have, let me tell you who can testify or give witnesses to my authority. And uh, he mentions John the Baptist, and he mentions basically four witnesses. But, um, but I want to focus on one of those witnesses, and that is uh, the scriptures themselves. Let's start with me in, in verse uh, uh, 35. This is referring to John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he was saying, you know, even the Pharisees went out to go and see what John the Baptist was doing when he was out there at the Jordan River, baptizing, proclaiming the kingdom of God, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near, and those kinds of things. And he, Jesus is referring to him, and he says um, in verse 35, he was, let's, let's go back to verse 34. Not that uh, this testimony that I received is from man, referring to John, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Like we said a little earlier, what's the purpose of Scripture? It's salvation. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. Now remember, who's, who's he talking to here? He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the ones who recorded scripture, recorded the scriptures, who compiled and gathered together all the scriptures uh, in the synagogues and also at the temple. And he says to these guys, 
You search the scriptures because you think that by in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Again, Jesus is not your model for winning friends and influencing people. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in, my, in, in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, Jesus is not minimizing the importance of studying the scripture. It's actually true that the, the Jews would think that uh, Scripture contained life. The very words of God were life to them. Two places in the, uh, the, uh, the Mishnah, the rabbinic writings, kind of roughly around Jesus' time, two times it mentions that, um, that the words of Torah are give life in this world and the world to come. So they weren't wrong in seeking life in the Scriptures, where was their mistake, according to Jesus? Their mistake was not that they were seeking Scripture. It was that they sought Scripture and missed who Scripture was pointing to. You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they testify about me. He goes on and ends this passage by saying, um, There is one who accuses you. This is in verse 45. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Remember, Moses, the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The main scriptures kind of at the time. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He goes, Moses wrote of me. We can see this kind of everywhere. Even in, even in Abraham. When Abraham is getting ready to offer Isaac and God's voice comes down and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he stops and he says, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son. This is figuring, prefiguring the offering of God the Father of his son. You see this in uh, Joseph. I've said this before, you know, Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers and now comes to represent his brothers before the king to forgive Joseph pictures Jesus. God's leading his people out of Egypt in Exodus. And, um, well, first let's go back to Moses. Moses is uh, an infant, and Pharaoh goes to destroy all of the infants, the Jewish children, right, the Jewish boys, because he's just fearful that the Israelites are going to grow in number. But Moses is saved as an infant kind of figuring, prefiguring Jesus being saved out of the massacre from Herod over what happened in Bethlehem. There's lots of different, you see shadows of Jesus everywhere in the scripture. When God gives instructions, the last plague, the plague of death is coming on the Israelites. So all of Israel, take a Passover lamb, you're, you're a spotless, perfect lamb, and offer that lamb outside of your door and apply that blood to your doorposts to the top and sides of the doorpost. Stay in your house. 
Several places in the New Testament refer to Jesus as that lamb. You see Jesus all through the scriptures. He's the tabernacle. He's the high priest. He's the offering. Moses in Deuteronomy, we talked about this before. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, he says, There's going to come a prophet after me. Listen to him. Hear his voice. This is quoted a couple times in Acts. It's about Jesus. All of scripture points to Jesus. And it does so because Jesus is life. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is life. And our scriptures, we have, point us to Jesus. They're inspired by God. They're inerrant, without error in the original writings. They're sufficient for all that we need to know for His will and for salvation. They're completely authoritative. And we can trust in them when we approach it with humility. But we do so with the goal of always finding Jesus. Finding Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's read the last two slides of our paragraph in closing. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. But we affirm that, enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command, in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. As God's people hear, believe, and do the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father God, again we give thanks to you for being... Uh, a speaking God who reveals and discloses himself to us and how you have done that in Jesus and how you have preserved uh, your scriptures, what we have in the Bible as your words to us, sufficient for teaching us about salvation and how we can have life both abundantly in this life and in the life to come through Christ through our faith in Him and His work for us on our behalf on the cross and His resurrection, the life that He has been granted because of His sacrifice, His offering, uh, He gives that life to those who, who trust in Him. God, we thank You that You have done that. God, we ask that You uh, stir a desire within all of us to wrestle with these written words that you have given us.
to carve out time in our schedules to read it, to know it, to understand it. That we would be, that we would be ready um, in season and out of season. God, that, you, uh, that these scriptures would uh, reproof and uh, rebuke and correct and train all of us, everyone here at Redeemer, in righteousness. And we ask that you illuminate our minds and our hearts through the Holy Spirit that resides in us as our deposit and as our guarantee. God, we ask that you do this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior and friend, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. May the uh, grace of May the grace of God and the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. All right. You're dismissed. Thank you, everyone. Kids volunteers, you can hang around here for a little bit. Oh, that's awesome. There's the there's a Bible, the communion cup and stuff, the piano, church building, and then you get picking wildly. <laughs> Yeah. And then there's you reading it. Yeah, I was talking about the same time.